Welcome to Third Man Walking. In the last episode, I announced I'd be heading to the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. Well, I did it, and now I'm back. And I don't have many interesting poker hands to recap, because I played for a total of about six hours before hopping in the car and heading back to Los Angeles. A lot of people really like poker tournaments, and I used to be one of those people. Until 2015, I played tournaments almost exclusively, and going back to my first few times playing poker, I preferred tournaments to cash games because tournaments give shape to poker sessions. In cash games, players come and go as they please. They can top off their stack whenever they want, so no one's keeping track of who's ahead. When you're playing a cash game session, you might look around the table and have no idea who's winning and who's stuck. And to me, in the early part of my poker career, that made cash games seem kind of pointless. Life is short, and why would you spend it playing a card game that gets you nowhere, that literally just goes around in circles for hours? In contrast, tournaments offer a mountain to climb. As you get closer to the top of the mountain, there are fewer and fewer climbers. Tournaments get more exciting and more exclusive the longer they go. They give you the chance to show everyone you're the best, if only for a day. They're competitive. As a beginning poker player, I loved that. Also, the bigger tournaments give players a chance, a slim one, but still a chance, at life-changing money. And as you enter the Pavilion Room or the Brasilia Room at the Rio in Las Vegas, you really feel that. You're playing a tournament called the Millionaire Maker. First place for this tournament will be at least a million dollars. It's not likely you'll win it, but you might. That's real. It's so real that you can taste it in your mouth. And I'm as jaded about tournaments as a poker player can be right now, as you're about to hear. But when I sit down to play a big tournament, even I feel the excitement of it physically, to such a degree that my mouth tastes like metal. So if you, the listener, love tournaments, I get it. And I don't want a harsher buzz. But what's happening for me is I feel that excitement. And then I sit down and I play about an orbit, and I'm like, wow, I hate this. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, part of how I feel about tournaments lately has to do with running bad in them. And this time in The Millionaire Maker, I only played two significant hands before I busted. In this first hand, the big blind is 300, and the main villain in this hand is going to be in middle position. She's a seemingly straightforward, passive recreational player who plays way, way too many hands. So I have pocket queens without a club, and I'm under the gun and raised to 700. The player in middle position calls, and so does the big blind. So there's 2,600 in the pot, and it comes jack-jack-10 with the jack of clubs. It checks to me, and in the moment, I think that this spot is close between checking and betting small. One factor in my favor here is that I can have all the strongest hands because I would raise a lot of hands that have a jack in them or pocket tens from under the gun. And another factor is that the player in middle position is quite loose and also quite short. She only has 7,300 at this point. So there's only so much damage she can do to me. So it checks to me, I bet a thousand. She calls and the big blind folds. So now there's 4,600 in the pot and the turn is the eight of clubs. So now jack, jack, 10, eight with the jack and eight of clubs. And again, I have queens without a club. So now she has 6,300 back. I check. She bets 1,300. And I'm not sure in the moment why she chose this sizing. I kind of wonder now if it was just because 
it left her with a single 5,000 chip that she didn't want to change. But she bets 1,300 into 4,600, a little more than a quarter of the pot. And I think I can certainly call here. And one benefit to calling against a player who's quite passive is that if she goes all in on the river, I can probably just fold. On the other hand, though, I thought her sizing is quite small. It seems consistent to me with the idea that she has a 10 or maybe an 8, like 9-8. So if we think about the 10s she can have, she can have a hand like 10-9, which has a pair and an open-ended straight draw. She can have a hand like 9-8, which also has a pair and an open-ended straight draw. She can have 10x of clubs, which has a pair and a flush draw. And if I go all in for her last 5,000 over this bet, I don't think she can fold any of those hands. Of course, she can also have a jack, and if she does, I'm going to be pretty much dead. But my thought was that the times when she's got a pair and a straight draw or a pair and a flush draw and she's forced to call off outweigh the possibility that she has trips. And also, even if she has trips, she doesn't have a whole lot behind. She only started the hand with 20-something big blinds, so this can't be that huge of a mistake. So I go all in. She instantly calls with Queen Jack, and I double her up. So I think my play on the flop is debatable. I think my play on the turn is a slight mistake. It was a mistake I had reasons for, but I'm not sure I love it, especially against a player of this type. In this next hand, the big blind is 500. There's a very active player in early position who's raising a ton of hands. He raises to 1100. The player next to act in middle position has also been quite active. He has opened quite a lot. He hasn't three bet a ton, but he's three bet some. And he re-raises to 3,600. It folds to the cutoff who has also been quite active and who three bets a lot. And he just calls. And now I'm on the button with pocket jacks and I have 14,200. So about 28 big blinds. And I knew I had jacks already when the middle position player made his re-raise. And at that point, I was leaning toward folding. But then when the cutoff just called, I figured because he was so active with re-raises preflop, I was almost always ahead of that player. And that even if I assigned the middle position player a very strong range of, say, aces through tens and ace-king, given the dead money, I'm doing well enough with pocket jacks against that range that it's going to be profitable to shove here. So I'm hoping that the player in early position the one who's just raised isn't going to wake up with aces or kings or something, and that the middle position player isn't going to wake up with one of those hands either. But I think this is a good enough spot to get my money in. So I do shove. It folds back to middle position, who instantly goes all in, which I know is bad news. He shows aces and holds, and I bust. <laughs> So I'm not sure I played either of these hands perfectly, certainly not the first one, but I don't think either spot is worth belaboring really. I had reasons for playing both hands the way I did, and I think my play in both hands was at least defensible. The more important point to me was that those were really the only two spots I got, and as the hours ticked away, I thought, what hands am I supposed to be winning here? How am I supposed to build a stack? I felt that way a lot in tournaments lately. I'm not sure that's worth belaboring either, because sometimes the answer is simply, you're not really supposed to. It's not your turn today. But maybe I'd feel the weight of this question a little bit less if I were running reasonably. 
as for every other aspect of playing this tournament, I'm not sure where to start. How about here? This is an exhaustive list of things I like about Las Vegas. One, the Asian food is amazing and easy to access. Los Angeles has great Asian food too, of course, but it'll often take you 20 or 30 minutes to get to the restaurant. In Vegas, it takes five. So Taiwanese dumplings, Japanese izakaya, amazing. Two, if you're there during the summer, the NBA Summer League is incredible. You can pay 40 or 50 bucks for a ticket and watch parts of 10 games in a day if you want. And sometimes someone a few rows in front of you stands up and you'll be like, whoa, that's Trey Young. So that's pretty sweet. And that's it. Those are all the things I like about Las Vegas. I spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about this art exhibit, Meow Wolf, because I was so excited having seen the original in Santa Fe. So I go to the exhibit in Las Vegas and it's a shell of what I saw in New Mexico which I guess shouldn't surprise me. I arrive in the parking lot and there's a lot of outdoor art that all feels off aesthetically. Then I wander into the building the exhibit is in and there's a bunch of businesses that feel like they were dreamed up by some insufferable middle-aged entrepreneur who wishes he were still 25. Like, yeah, we're going to have zip lines and uh, VR, lots of VR, and also axe throwing. Just really cheesy stuff. Then I get into the actual art exhibit, which is smaller and tackier and costs significantly more than the one in Santa Fe. And then I leave and check into my hotel, which isn't incredibly expensive, but which isn't cheap either, and find that the correct bedding isn't there and that the bathroom lights don't work. I've forgotten my toothbrush and I head to the drugstore to buy one, a drugstore, by the way, that's nowhere near the strip, and the toothbrush costs twice what it would in LA. And Las Vegas just gets you like this over and over giving you stuff that's as tacky as possible and just taking the max. But let's go back to poker. I've told you a little bit about the hands I've played. Now I want to give you a sense of the experience. On the day I arrive, I don't play a tournament, but it's a relatively quiet day at the Rio. So I register for the Millionaire Maker, which will begin the following day. When you're at the World Series, planning how to register is a whole thing. Because if you do it like I do, paying cash, you're going to spend a bunch of time in line. You also have to prove that you're vaccinated to register for a tournament, and I planned for that, signing up on an app that the WSOP said that they would recognize, so I don't have much trouble with that part. But then to actually register for a tournament, I'm in line for about a half hour. I wait in these lines three times over two days while I'm in Vegas, and they're around a half hour each time. After that, I briefly hop into a 510 game, which is fine, but not what I might be able to find in LA where I know what to look for. There are a couple other pros and then a bunch of recreational players who aren't especially talented, but who also aren't going to put 50 big blinds into a pot without a monster hand. So you're going to have winning sessions a huge percentage of the time in a game like this, but there will be long stretches where nothing really happens. In LA, wild stuff happens all the time. It's not always the wild stuff you'd like to see happen because many players are aggressive and smart and unpredictable, but money is going to change hands. Not so in this game. Now, obviously, I'm just playing a brief afternoon session here, and I imagine if you live in Las Vegas, you get a sense of where to show up and when to maximize your chances of getting action. I've heard that nights are good. I'm guessing the best time to be there probably isn't 2 p.m. on a Thursday. But what I saw is consistent with what I've heard about Vegas cash games generally. And that's not so bad. If I were playing in Las Vegas, I would probably bluff a lot more than I do in Los Angeles, and that would be interesting. But overall, it's not my idea of a good time.
The next morning, I sit down to play the tournament, and man, is it unpleasant. You're playing 10-handed, which not only makes for unexciting poker, it's extremely uncomfortable. I'm taller than average, and I can't get my legs under the table the entire day, which means I'm constantly straining my back. 10-handed poker also forces you to play tighter than you would if you were playing 9-handed or 8-handed, which isn't much fun either. Then there are the dealers. I remember some of the dealers in past series being perhaps not the greatest, but it's nothing compared to what I see this year. Now, there are all kinds of complicated labor issues going on in the U.S. right now, and getting hundreds of dealers all working together in the same room is probably pretty difficult in the best of circumstances, but I'm shocked at how bad some of the dealers are. There are some that seem totally fine, and the ones who aren't seem willing to listen to direction from the players, but the dealer's mistakes slow the game down over and over. There are a few who make five or six significant errors in a space of seven or eight hands. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that the player at my table who's in seat one, right next to the dealer, essentially starts acting as a commentator, except that he's commentating for the benefit of the dealer, not for an audience. He says things like, okay, we've got a check, a bet of 1500 and a call, 500 change for seat five, and let's see a turn. And if a player did this to a competent dealer, they would be beyond insulted. But the dealer this player is doing this to seems to appreciate it, and it really does help move the game along. So, again, I don't blame the dealers themselves for this. They all seem to be trying. They all seem to want to do well. And if they're thrown into an environment like this without proper training, that's not their fault. I hate to even mention this because I feel like most of the dealers I interact with in LA are good at their jobs. And when that's the case, I mostly just don't notice how they're doing. This experience at the series gave me new appreciation for my LA dealers who are mostly quite good and who still take a fair amount of flack from the players. This also seems to be a problem that the entire series is having. It has nothing to do with any individual dealer. So any player who tries to call the floor over to rat out a struggling dealer isn't one I'd want to share a table with. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm just saying I'd hope for a bit more at a marquee event like this. But you add all this stuff together the long registration lines, the uncomfortable tables, the rake, the clogged hallways on breaks, the fact that you have to be in Las Vegas, and you start to think, is this worth it? I spoke on the last podcast about how there's no chance tournaments are worth the same hourly rate for me as cash games. So if tournaments don't really work for me financially, then why should I play them? Well, here's one reason. In cash games, even if you're good or Maybe especially if you're good. You're a cockroach. You can probably scavenge most efficiently if you aren't too worried about whether others regard you as a good poker player, which is fine for me in the short term. But some part of me thinks, but what if I never prove I was good at this? A poker player I knew died a while back. And in a notice about their death, I read, this player had X dollars in tournament winnings according to thehendedmob.com. So if I die tomorrow, what might go in my obituary is Charlie Wilmoth was a quote-unquote professional poker player who had $34,000 in winnings, according to thehendedmob.com. Which just sounds sad, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm not what I say I am, that I've just been messing around these past several years, when obviously I'm a cash game player, and cash game winnings aren't recorded anywhere, and the Hendon Mob doesn't track actual earnings anyway. Of course, this is just ego on my part. I shouldn't care about this, and the older I get, the less I do care. 
Increasingly, it isn't worth it to do something that isn't fun for me, just to leave something behind. Something that, by the way, no one would actually really care about or think about for more than three seconds. There's also the matter of FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO can strike a poker player at any time because you choose what games to play and what if there's a better game across the room or in some other casino. But it's especially bad during tournament season because the cost of Mo missing out feels so great. Whoops, you could have won a million dollars, but you decided not to play the tournament that day and your friend won instead. Someday soon, some friend of mine is going to go to Las Vegas for the World Series and win a million dollars. And if something like this had happened to me 10 years ago, if I'd been a professional poker player then and some peer of mine had won a million dollars in a tournament, I would have thought, ah, that could have been me. Why wasn't it me? Why didn't I enter that tournament? Or if I did, why wasn't it me who won? But part of getting older is putting those things aside and being happy for your friends when they succeed. I've gotten better at that, and I think it's partly just maturity and seeing that jealousy for what it is, which is a negative and useless emotion. And of course, just because your friend won a million dollars in a tournament doesn't mean that opportunity would have been available to you if you'd registered. You would have gotten different cards. But also, part of that change for me is just being pretty content with the way my own life is going. If I somehow stumble into a million dollars in the next few years, That would be amazing, but if I don't, that's okay. I'm on a good path now, and I don't need to take a wild leap to a different one. And so I busted the tournament last Friday, and then I registered to play again on Saturday. And then, a few hours later, I went back to the Rio, and I unregistered and went home. I feel good about that decision, and who knows what the future holds, but right now I have no plans to go back to Las Vegas. I probably will occasionally still play tournaments in Southern California, but I doubt I'll go out to Vegas much going forward. Any listeners out there who are currently at the Rio or who are looking forward to going there at some point in the next month, I hope you have a great time and win big. I hope you enjoy Vegas. A lot of people do. I'm not here to rain on anyone's parade, only to describe how the last couple weeks have gone. I don't think my negativity here represents any sort of absolute truth, even purely for me. In fact, as I mentioned, I'm sure I'd feel differently if I'd made a deep run in one of these huge tournaments. It's also the case that, while I do work hard at being good at poker, and I'm proud of the life I've made for myself by working hard, I haven't put tons of hours in recently at being good at tournaments, because I just don't think the bang for the buck is there for me, and because there are only so many hours in the day. But I respect anybody out there who's really dedicated to being good at tournaments, and it makes sense to me that they'd feel differently about the World Series of Poker than I do. So everyone out there who's firing, good luck, and I'll see you when you get back. I'll be in LA playing cash games. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.